Podcast. I'm Tara, and today, Joe is probably somewhere in the Yukon Territory. Nevertheless, I am going to open my heart and spill my guts and talk about everything I love about the Portland Trailblazers and the NBA. I do have someone to join me today, though, and most of you will recognize his voice. He is the co-host of what I call the Other Blazers Edge podcast. Welcome to the show, Dan Morang. Oh, hey, how's it going? Appreciate you bringing me on. Well, I am so glad you're here today because I have a lot of questions. And you and I have, like, sat close to each other during a game, you know, at least one time. And you <laughs> helped me I, I pity see you a that. lot. You got very excited <laughs> to watch the game. It was really fun watching the game with you. But um, it was great to have somebody right there I could just turn to and ask all my questions of. So ever since then, I pretty much had, like, a running t- tally of things I wanted to ask you about. Oh, let's, let's hear them. Okay. Well, the first question is, why do you hate waffles so much, Dan? <laughs> I'm just not a, a a starchy breakfast food kind of guy. It's kind of funny. This is like this has got so much play. It was just kind of an offbeat comment that I made to Dave once, and everybody's like, "How can you hate waffles so much?" I'm like, "I just I don't I, I don't dig starches in the morning. I mean, I, I I can abide some potatoes, but waffles, pancakes. I'm just I'm just not about that life. It's just it's not for me. You just never know what people are gonna like pick up pick up on, do you? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I could say a million things about the, the finer points of the pick and roll, and, and nobody's going to care. I say one negative thing about uh, breakfast food, and everybody's you know grabs their pitchforks or grabs their breakfast, breakfast forks, I should say. <laughs> well, apparently there's a big waffle lobby out there, and if you mess with them... A big big waffle is not to be is not to be messed with. Apparently not, and you're finding out. So I guess you got to be ready to pay the price. Uh, but anyway, really glad to have you today. Like I was saying, I um, have have a lot of questions about the Trailblazers and kind of about uh, things that we've seen all year in general with the team. But let's start with where we are right now. Uh, we're uh, we oh, are. Boy. Recording this on a day that it's actually sunny, so that's good. That's good. <laughs> I mean, I mean but, looking at the bright side, sure. Exactly. There's a lot of bright side. Uh, but so anyway, today the Blazers are down 0-2 against the team from the Bay Area. And we had two, what I would consider two very different games in the book. Um, but I don't really know for sure if they were really all that different or if there was just one component that was on fire in the first game and not on fire in the second game and otherwise everything else was the same. So I'd love to hear your thoughts um, about the differences between the two games and what happened, um, you know, game one to game two. The answer is yes. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, there's there's a component of guys just absolutely knocking down shots and seeing CJ and Dame. Um, the other component is the Warriors are just that good. I mean, Dave in his uh, analysis brought up the point that you know you get 16 points from Steph and you don't get any points from Kevin Durant because he's not out there and yet Portland still loses by almost 30 points that's that's crazy and then in game one you get basically I'll go out and say it that CJ McCollum's best ever performance as a blazer and it's not good enough to get to get you within 10 points I mean that's that's a pretty crazy measuring stick and it's not like Damian didn't back him up in game one. This game comes down to what I've kind of called the Nurkic factor. It's not just the fact that Nurk isn't playing. 
is the fact that everyone behind him in the pecking order is moved up a spot now. And that's what I think made the Blazers successful with Nurkic. He was that legit number three or 2A, 2B, whatever you want to call it. And guys like Crab and Harkless and, and Aminu, these siloed players who have these defined roles, were able to shine in those defined roles because they weren't being called on as heavily. Now they've been moved up a peg, and if they don't show up, it's it's glaring. And that's what I think you saw in both Game 1 and Game 2. The Warriors decided, you know, in the fourth quarter of Game 1, everybody but Damon CJ can beat us. That, that That's fine. Let, let them. And that's the same thing that we kind of saw in the playoffs last year uh, against the Warriors. They decided they're going to trap Damon CJ, and everyone else is going to have to beat us. Remember, Mason Plumley was the key in the first round against Clippers. He was going to be the revelation going into the second round. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it didn't happen. Because that's that's just the way they design their their defense in that, hey, Mason Plumlee can beat us. Go ahead. We're just not going to let the two-star uh, guards get it done. So so do you you would agree that the even though, I mean, I heard a lot of fans after the first game say, you know, that was really great. That was really fun. We hung in there for the first three quarters. And then that fourth quarter is when Draymond Green really turned it up. And we just, you know, didn't have a chance against him. And then after the second game, it was just, oh my gosh, what happened? But as far as, with the exception of Damon CJ going off in the first one, you feel like the other players pretty much performed the same way in either game. Yeah, the, the, neither neither game really... I mean, who are we talking about outside of Damon CJ? I mean, nobody came to the fore. Uh, Maurice Harkless has probably had the the best effect on a game, but even then, he shot, you know, subpar. Uh, Evan Turner had a good game one, um, but was pretty much non-existent game two. Uh, Aminu has had stretches of, of defensive brilliance, but offensively, it's been, you know, a bag of cats. And, so I would love to hear kind of specifically um, about uh, Evan Turner in game one, some of the things that you saw him doing that were that were the most effective. Uh, defensively, Turner actually, I know Kevin Durant's stat line begs to differ, but Turner actually did a pretty decent job on Durant. You, there's, there's two or three guys in the entire NBA that can guard Kevin Durant on a consistent basis. That's guys like Kawhi Leonard, Giannis, and LeBron. I mean, and Draymond. I mean, those, those those are the guys. If you don't have one of those guys, it's going to be very, very difficult to contain him. Now, if you can force him into being a jump shooter, that's probably a victory. But the thing is, like any of these superstar guard wing hybrid players, if they discover their jump shot and they get hot, there's no stopping them. Think about LeBron James. For all of his talents, his one shortcoming is his jump shot. But if he starts hitting shots, a la like he did last night for the Cavs, he is unstoppable. It's the same thing with Durant. If he gets going to the rim and he's eating you up inside and then all of a sudden his jumper comes alive, it doesn't matter what you do. So you've, you've got to find a way to, to get him off his game or you've got to shut down everybody else. No, that was an easier situation when he was in Oklahoma City. It was him and, it was him and Westbrook. I mean, that, that was the case. And if Durant started settling for shots, you had a chance. Because remember, playoff Durant was a thing, and it wasn't a positive connotation. Playoff Durant was a guy that got you know, to be known for settling. Mm-hmm. And in Golden State, if he settles and everybody else works, they're still going to get phenomenal shots because you've got you know two of the premier shooters in NBA history sitting around him and a pretty decent set of role players around him. So it's, it's this really, really difficult balancing act that you, you have to walk. And 
you basically had to play the perfect game, and, and the Blazers did from their backcourt, but it wasn't enough. And, and it, then you get the Turners, the Aminus, the Crabs, and, and the like, and if they don't show up with, with a supreme effort, then it's, it's, it's a mountain that you just can't climb. So you felt like that the turn, despite the fact that Kevin Durant still had an impressive stat line, that Turner did a good job generally in defense on on Durant. What was he doing? Because when you listed off those uh, those fellows who are able to guard Durant, you listed some guys who are super long, like uh, Kawhi and Giannis, and you know super athletic like LeBron James. So what did Turner do that? that you felt was effective and how can we get him to do it again in game three <laughs> the thing is, is is turner is six seven so he's he's big if he's playing at the two guard the problem is it turns into a cross match and durant can play the two the three the four and even the five at times is it so it's really difficult to keep somebody with length athleticism and strength on him i mean versatility wise defensively aminu is the best matchup for him but the thing is, is that aminu is good a defender as he is he's better inside than he is outside he moves his feet really well for a guy his size and he's not your typical stretch four when it comes to mobility he, he moves really well but kevin Wait, durant, aminu moves well or durant yes, moves okay uh, aminu moves well and that's where turner has aminu beat he doesn't have aminu's length he's not quite as strong but he moves his feet really well and that's what allows him to kind of stay with durant but the, the, the thing is, is even if you challenge durant's shot it's if you want to go back to, to lamarcus lamarcus is a guy that because he's so long and his release is so high, it's very difficult to bother his shot. And Durant's the same way. It's 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 much like Dirk Nowitzki. It's a long, high release where he has a little bit of fade to it, and it's almost impossible to really alter his shot. And Turner can get into his body, and he did that in, in Game 1. And the difference, I think, really in Game 1 was that um, both teams were allowed to be physical. Mm-hmm. Game two, that wasn't really the case. And that's that's a case of two different officiating crews, which you'll see throughout the playoffs. Ah, oh, interesting. I, had, I hadn't even thought about that way. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, no. Anybody who knows me or has followed me or heard me talk about refs in the past knows my utter disdain for, for Scott Foster, who ref game two, um, and my absolute joy and love and appreciation for Ron Gerritsen, who ref game one. Um, for anybody who's out there, you, you can go out and you can find the stats out there that show um, – what refs call the most fouls um, on for the home team, for the road team, call the most fouls overall, call the most in the first half, second half, quarter by quarter, for the home team, for the away team. Basically, you can see who blows their whistle and who doesn't. Ron Gerritsen is a guy who's known to just swallow his whistle and let things play out. That, that's that's how I like my basketball, consistent. If, if, it doesn't Im- if, if there's a foul away from the ball that doesn't impact the play, don't call it. But then there's guys like Scott Foster and, and Tony Brothers who like to blow their whistle a lot. And the Blazers have a checkered past with Scott Foster. I mean, he's had two rule changes based on calls that he's blown. I mean, that alone in the in Blazer games. So in the first game, they were allowed to be more physical and continued. Absolutely. And they were allowed to continue to play. Do you feel like the Blazers are a team that needs the the rhythm and like the not the cotton stopping and the starting and um, they do better under those kinds of conditions? Do you think that contributes I don't know to it at all? I don't know if it's necessarily rhythm. It's I think it's a... Because I, you know they, what? They I do think it has hands. to do with rhythm. I think it has to do with rhythm because I think this team is so young. And that is what I've really felt from these first two games. That these these guys... Dame and CJ and Evan Turner, those are our veterans. 
like there is nobody older than them on this roster with deep experience in the playoffs. And I felt like those first two games, guys like uh, especially Noah Vonley, I thought he just looked young and inexperienced because like I felt like he had been playing pretty strong towards the end of the season. You can correct me if you saw something different about that, but I thought he'd been playing really strong. And then I just felt like that starting that first game, he just seemed... I don't want to say he didn't seem like a, like a deer in the headlight, but he felt he seemed less confident than he had been towards the end of the season. And I think things like the game stopping and starting, I think any little thing is more likely to send this team um, uh, to make it harder for them because of that inexperience. Like these guys, I mean, how many, I don't know how many years of experience the uh, team from the Bay Area has in playoff basketball right now. But I'm gonna tell you, we all know it's gonna be quite a bit more. Uh, if you put up games played between the two, it, yeah. it, it heavily favors the Warriors. You've got a yeah. guy like Andre Iguodala and another guy like David West. Remember, David West was in the playoffs for a long, long time with Chris Paul in New yeah. Orleans. I mean, the, these guys are playoff veterans. You've got guys who've won a championship on this team. Uh, I think rhythm plays a part into it, but I think defensively, a lot of these guys play defense still with their hands. Okay. And when they're allowed to be physical, they're allowed to do things um, a little bit more. And I think it helps them. In, in a playoff atmosphere, you're, you're going to be much more physical. That's that's the mm-hmm. reality of it. And the, the rhythm of the game can definitely get off balance, certainly, if uh, if, if fouls are being called. But specifically with a guy like Vonley, Vonley's a guy that, even when he's playing well, is, is prone to, to foul issues. That's mm-hmm. something we've just kind of seen with him. And as far as the him kind of... I don't want, you're right. Deer in the headlights probably is a, a bit too much, but it goes back to the whole Nurkic effect in that he was playing very well when he was the tertiary option to Nurkic. But when all of a sudden he's moved up a couple pegs and he's the guy in the middle, then the, his shortcomings become that much more glaring. Well, I felt like things for him just kind of seemed to fall into place once Nurkic came and he just seemed to know where to be and know like which position he needed his body in to receive the pass and just certain things that he, he wasn't simplifies the game with before. Pardon me? He simplifies the game. Having Nurkic. Nurkic having Nurkic. Simplify. Okay. It makes it easier for Vonley. I mean, if you, if you look at his production, it wasn't like when, when Nurkic got here and those two kind of started building that little bit of rapport and that chemistry, it came out of the the simplification of, of offense and defense for him. He knew where Nurkic was going to be. Nurkic was going to be at the free throw line or below defensively, and offensively, Nurkic was going to be setting screens and rolling to the rim, and he needed to be in the short corner. And the short corner is going to be the opposite side of the, the of the ball. So if, if you're if the pick and rolls on the top right wing, the short corner is the short space between the three-point line and the uh, and the paint. Okay. And when Nurkic rolls down the outside right side of the lane, and Noah Vonley's on the left-hand box, when that double team comes, that guy leaves Vonley, that's where all those dump-off passes were coming from to Vonley. And he was making a killing on that. Like His production didn't increase with all of a sudden Noah Vonley hitting jumpers, right? 
Right, it was, no. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was him catching it was and him dunking. giving him that little pass under the basket. Yeah, and, and that's what I mean. It simplifies him. Option one, catch and dunk. Option okay. two, catch and dunk. And the same thing was true defensively. It was, okay, Nurkic is a big enough body where he's going to eat up a lot of space. That means when somebody does drive and I see him commit, I just need to get a body on somebody else, make sure I box out and rebound. Or if I know that, that Nurkic is, is going to get beat, I can come over and help and slide and use my athleticism to block a shot. And we saw a lot more weak side shot blocks from Vonley when Nurkic was out there. Now, you take Nurkic out of that, and now all of a sudden Vonley's the guy that's that's got to sit in the paint on both sides. And he's doing this against guys. I mean, JaVale McGee goes seven for seven, and that's just McGee being bigger, longer, stronger, older, smarter. And it's crazy to say that McGee is smarter in NBA sense considering all the, the, the history that he has, but that's just the reality. And they simp- Golden State did the same thing for, for McGee that – um, Nurkic for the Blazers. It was simplification. McGee, catch, lob, dunk. Right. Okay. Okay. So, as I as I watched Vonley at the end of the season, even after Nurkic went out, I saw that he was doing some things with, with he was more, better with more confidence. But um, yeah, the but the spacing was never the, never is never the same when when Nurkic is not in there. Interesting. So I have a question about Javale McGee because. We were, I was, I went, we had women's hops and talks this last Wednesday to watch this game. And it was a friends and family affair. So we had a really big crowd there. It was super fun. I can't help you with any rat tail questions. (laughs) That that one I can't work with. No, this was not about his hair. (laughs) This was about a bunch of people in the audience saying, oh, JaVale McGee is so bad, so bad, so bad. And I've heard that all year about like people can't believe JaVale McGee is doing anything. And they always talk about him being on Shaq and a Fool. And I just don't know the history of, JaVale McKee. So why does everybody say that he is so bad? Because he, he what was he like seven for seven in that game? Yep. <laughs> he has had some of the, I mean, his Shaq in the full history is long. Right. And, I mean, he has made some of the biggest boneheaded plays in modern basketball history. I mean, glaringly bad, but you're talking about a guy with a seven foot six wingspan who's seven foot plus tall, incredibly athletic and has giant hands. When you make things that simple for him, and the Warriors can do that because they have four All-Stars, two surefire Hall of Famers, probably three, maybe more. When he's that far down the pecking order, when literally his only jobs are screen, roll, catch, dunk, rebound, mm-hmm. that those are his only jobs, then, yeah, a guy, any guy like that can excel. I mean, we, we've seen this over and over and over, where if you have a guy whose role is so clearly defined that that's all they have to do and everybody else covers for everything else, they can look like absolute monsters. I don't know. I still feel it's pretty hyperbolic for people to be talking about how bad he is. Oh, his basketball his basketball IQ is very bad. He, he makes... The thing about it is... Like, what does he maybe, do? Maybe it's, it's not basketball IQ is probably the wrong way to phrase that. It's... His decision-making, like, he'll, he'll make decisions sometimes that are jaw-droppingly amazing. And you're just like, how did he do that? And then he'll back that up with arguably the biggest boneheaded mistake you've ever seen. Um, okay, remember, remember, remember Draymond Green? Or not Draymond Green, uh, um, uh, D'Angelo, or D'Angelo, DeAndre Jordan with the Clippers and Chris Paul when he didn't go up with a ball <laughs> in Batum? Okay, that's JaVale McGee in a nutshell. Like, not knowing time situation circumstance is he one of those guys who overthinks things and 
once he starts thinking, then he he freezes, or is he someone who like just doesn't think at all, and you just go, oh my gosh, doesn't what think just happened? It's, 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 so I know a lot of people want to say that Myers Leonard is a guy that hesitates. Uh-huh. JaVale's a guy that doesn't hesitate. Okay. He just makes the wrong decision. You know, it's funny because sometimes, I mean, the when when Myers doesn't hesitate, the ball is so much more likely to go in. So, oh, yeah. like, I, I, I'm always yelling at the TV, like, to the whole it's a, team. It's a, it's a full mental thing. I'll be like, think, it, think, like, think, except for you, Myers, don't think. Like, that's my regular chant as I'm watching a game is, everybody think, everybody think, except for you, Myers, don't think. Because he just... When he doesn't think and he does things automatically, it's just more more prone to happen. Okay, well, I don't. I have a my my follow up question about games one and two is, um, what does game one tell us about the potential of this team, and what does game two tell us about their challenges? Game one says that maybe, just maybe, Dame CJ can work. It says and maybe, it, not like maybe. Oh, this is gonna work. It's still you're and still in maybe. I, I anybody who knows me knows that. I, I've never thought that th- these two could be a championship pairing. Right. But if CJ plays defense, like he played defense in game one, just 75% of that throughout the regular season, that's more than passable defense. That, that That's a plus defensive player. He put Clay Thompson in a straight jacket, and I've never seen him do that. Can you talk a little bit more about what you what you were seeing that CJ was doing that was different? Was it his timing was more on? Was it his spacing his timing, was better? Or? His, his timing is always good. CJ is is a is for being a guy who's six three, and I think he's listed at six four or six five, but he's he's six three. Um, he's not real long, um, but he's got decent wingspan and reach. But with him, he finds a way to block shots on guys that are bigger than him. And that's, that's a natural inclination. That's natural timing. Guys either have it or they don't. But when he was chasing Clay Thompson, and this is the biggest issue for the trailblazers in general is trailing on screens, knowing how to get through screens, how to fight through them, the angles to take, how to not get caught and how to stay tight to the player coming off the screen. And Portland in in general, with when you've got two guys in Damon CJ who aren't great in that area, um, they can be taken advantage of. But CJ did a masterful job of game one of staying in Clay Thompson's hip pocket. He was trailing, staying on his hip, not allowing him to change direction, knowing where ultimately Clay wanted to catch the ball and the spots he wanted to get to. That's a basic understanding of the scouting report. And okay. it's not even basic, it's an advanced understanding of the scouting report, knowing the sets and knowing where Clay wants to get to and beating him to those spots and getting there and cutting off the angle because he knows that Clay isn't going to put the ball on the floor afterwards. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was one of the things I was really scared about is just the fact that um, Clay doesn't need to hold on to the ball for more than just a split second. Yep. And, um, you know, we've had we've struggled so much defending the perimeter all year. Um, but I like how you, um, what you said about, you know, CJ's advanced knowledge of the scouting report. That makes a lot of sense because that's totally the kind of, you know, guy that we've heard that CJ is, that he's cerebral and that he know you know, he's got super high basketball IQ. And I can see how that would, you know, also with the extra time that he's had um, would be a way that he could, um, you know, have a really successful night on, on defense like that. What happened between game and one and game two, though? Well, I mean, Clay really didn't have a great game in game two either. Okay. 
CJ still still stayed on him. You felt like he kept up his uh, generally kept up the the uh, defense. The intensity, absolutely. Okay. He, he he lost him twice that I that I know for sure where Clay got free. Um, there was a series of screens and and then a, a, a staggered screen followed by a back pick and CJ got caught. And that, that's just that's going to happen in the course of an NBA game, NBA game to even the best defenders in the league. Okay. There's there's 110 plus possessions in a game, uh, and that's just going to happen. So I don't want to get too technical, but a staggered screen followed by a back pick. Does that mean that those were screens with more than like more than one screen there's, in a row? There's three, three multiple guys screens. involved. Exactly. The staggered screen is real simple. It's a staggered screen is is two offensive players, typically two big, sometimes a small forward or a power forward. Um, you've got let's just say that the ball is at the top middle uh, above the three point line. There's one guy to the left, like you normally have in a straight up pick and roll. And there's one more, let's say the screen's being set on the left. And let's say that there's one more guy approximately two to three feet away, um, setting another screen. So he's got, and it can be below the first screener, meaning closer to the rim or above the first screener. And what that happens is it forces the defensive player to make a decision very quickly. If you fight through the first screen, you have to fight over. Well, if you fight over and then you get caught and he drives, that means you have to fight under the next screen that's sitting there. And that means he can either go further out and take that little step back jumper or fade out to the three-point line in the corner or drive straight to the rim and now help defense is coming and now everything's open on the back side of the floor on the right-hand side. Oh my God, and it stresses me out just thinking about trying to get through all that. Yeah, and, and the Warriors do that probably better than anybody. And there was one where CJ got had had to come through on the staggered screen and he Clay made a move like he was going to the rim and then he went to the step back. And then as CJ came back up, there was another screen on the backside that, that, that just wouldn't allow him. It wasn't a back screen, excuse me, it was a down pick, uh, which means it's coming from the the top as you come back up. And as he tried to fight back up again, uh, there I believe it was Draymond that that set the down the down screen, and Clay had a wide open three. And that's that's just the Warriors putting a a better system in play than really any any team in the league, and that's part, partly system and and mostly personnel. When you've got the guys that can that can all step in and out and hit from pretty much anywhere, you you can do that mix and match and, and force defenses into a serious bind. Okay, well, I feel pretty good about then. So, so you're saying, except for a, a few exceptions, CJ seemed to be able to maintain, like you said, the defensive intensity and to be able to continue to read those plays that he knew was were coming. Yeah, no, I mean, he's he still did a, a fantastic job, and um, I I was I was all about it. Um, okay. So, and you were talking about how watching game one made you think that just maybe, which is progress for you, <laughs> just yeah, maybe Damon CJ could make it. And a lot of that really isn't even based off of just game one. Um, it, it's based off of um, the what, what Nurkic means to this team. And I know Nurkic wasn't in the game, but I've seen what he does to this team defensively and how he walls things off. If CJ's providing, because the Blazers really don't have a plus defender on the perimeter consistently in the pick and roll coverage. Maurice Harkless is a plus defender. Al Farouk Amini is a plus defender. But they're not often in pick and roll coverage covering the ball handler. Okay. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're good defenders in their own right, but they're not the ones that are primarily involved in pick and roll coverage on the ball handler. Okay. That's Dame, that's CJ, and sometimes it's Crab. 
And none of those guys have consistently shown the ability to be, to be a plus defender and to take the option one, option two away. You know, a lot of guys in the NBA can take option one away. It's the it's the great defenders that can take option two and option three away and force the, the play further into into another action and further into the shot clock. The, the lower you go into the shot clock against most teams in the league, the lower their success rate is. Very few teams, with the exception like the Grizzlies and the Spurs, who can grind it out, mm-hmm. perform really well late in the shot clock. Like the Grizzlies are designed to perform late in the shot clock. The Jazz are designed to perform late in the shot clock. That's playoff basketball. What do you so, mean designed to perform that way? Like their their whole plan is to, th- you know, toss it around a whole bunch or just ISO it for a whole bunch and then then you go at the end of the shot clock? I mean, how they, is that different than what everybody else does? They In today's pace and space offense, meaning playing fast and spacing the floor, the, these teams still want to play playoff basketball in the regular season. That means slowing it down, okay. valuing possessions more and more. The ball isn't really necessarily humming around the perimeter. It'll go in and, in into a, a, a post set. Usually uh, it'll go. It's, it's, it's more of a traditional offense in the inside out variety, but with elements of today's NBA where you've got a, a bevy of, like Utah, for example, they still have a bevy of three point shooters. You still got George Hill. You still got Gordon Hayward. You still got Rodney Hood, but you've got Derek Favors. You, you've got Rudy Gobert. So you run these pick and rolls. Um, you post up a Derek Favors. Gordon Hayward can go down the block and they, they'll go later into the clock and, and, and grind you out on the offensive end because on the defensive end, they can make you work uh, harder than just about anybody else offensively. Okay. Well, I want to go back and talk about game two a little bit. What does game two tell us about the challenges that the Blazers are facing? This team is still a few pieces away. Um, Something that I've said over and over again with, with this roster is that it is, it is still a flawed roster. Um, guys like Aminu, uh, guys like Crab, they're, they're nice players. I, I thoroughly enjoy them. I like having them on this team. They're guys that I would like to see, see stay around in a sense one way or another. But they're what I call siloed players. Th- there's the only guys on this team I can say unequivocally are two-way players and have shown it for a long stretch or or at least some stretch are Maurice Harkless and to a lesser extent Nurkic. Mm -hmm. They're guys that you can count on on both ends of the floor. Aminu is a a fantastic defender, but we've all seen what we get from him offensively. It's just you don't know night in, night out. Damian Lillard is one of the most explosive offensive players in the league. Defensively, there are definite shortcomings. C.J. McCollum is arguably the most efficient shooter in the league right now. I mean, he was just short of 50, 40, 90. And something I, I, I put out on Twitter the other day, he's one of nine players since 83-84 to shoot 48% from the field, 40% or better from the from the three-point line, and 90% or better from the free-throw line with over 1,200 attempts, meaning a Dang, volume shooter. That's nice. The other guys in there are, you know, Steph, Larry Bird, um, Durant had one season. I mean, you're, you're you're talking about the premier shooters of the modern NBA era. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and like we just talked about, you you felt like his his defense is improving, but that we so but we still have uh, we, pieces we, we that are missing. Obviously, yeah. yeah. I don't think anybody um, uh, disagree is going to disagree too vehemently with that. But what do you feel about Dame's potential on the defensive end? I I want to. I want to believe um, two years ago, I believe a year and a half ago, maybe I wrote a pretty lengthy piece on blazer's edge documenting 
showing Dame's defensive potential and vast defensive issues. Uh, video, statistical evidence, everything it kind of just showed. He, in isolation, without the pick and roll, is a good defender. Not so when he's guarding somebody one-on-one? One-on-one, no pick and roll, straight heads up. It's when you put him in pick and rolls that becomes a problem. Okay. Dame runs into picks and gets caught in them <laughs> more I than just, almost any. I had nightmares about him just going straight into Taj Gibson's gut, like over and over and over again. Yeah, it's it, it's really a strange dynamic because coming out of Weber State, the thing that everybody said about him is he's the most pick and roll ready offensive guard in recent NBA memory. And that's translated to the NBA. So you would think that somebody that understands how to set up the pick and roll offensively, how to set the angles, what angles to attack at, would understand those angles on the other side defensively. Yet he finds himself getting, not not just getting caught, but splitting the middle of a defender, setting the screen. And that's a big time issue. There There was a change last year where Dame went from getting caught on the picks a ton to always fighting over them. And I was able to look at the synergy stats and see a, a definite change where the scheme was fight over every time. We'll have Mason step up a little bit higher and try to force the drive out to, out to the uh, sideline. And the percentages reflected that. And the Blazers' defense increased. It, it got better. So it worked. It seemed to work. But then teams counterplay that. They, they see the scouting reports. They, they see the numbers. They get, oh, he's going to fight over every time. So, okay, let's go ahead and put the action here to where we, where we concentrate more on holding the ball just that little bit longer. And while Mason Plumley comes out, or wherever the center is, comes out that little bit higher, now there's a big pocket of space down the middle, and we're going to hit him on cuts and rolls endlessly. And, and that's the counter to that. And so Dame not being able to fight over or under or make the correct read necessary or to negate the pick entirely there there are guys that just mike conley mike conley slips picks like there's no tomorrow so how do you do that how do you it's a natural instinct and ability and anticipation what's it look like when you see it so like a guy's coming up to set a pick and it just doesn't work because he can't get to his position he he's changing his positioning which while also not negating his defensive positioning so he sees the like a guy like Mike Conley comes up and he, he sees the, the pick coming. And Chris Paul, Chris Paul's great at it too. The way they shuffle their feet, the way they move their hips, they don't allow the defensive, the, the, the pick setter to get his, you know, his belly button on their hip. Say that again. They the the screen setter, the big typically. Okay. They're trying to put their belly button on the defender's hip. Okay. They're trying to get it basically split him. To make that, them that, go straight through the middle of them. Yeah, you want to set that hard pick. That that's that's when you get that clean pick. And that's when people fall down. <laughs> like they that, run exactly. in, they fall. The Stephen the Stephen Adams on Patrick Beverly pick the other night. Okay, yeah. You where you just split them down the middle and crush them. That's that's the, that's the the football equivalent of a three block. You get the pancake. Those those don't happen very often. But what you want to do is you want to get them caught. That's ultimately what we're trying to do. And and the best screen setters in the league are the illegal screen setters. I mean, those those were the Garnets and the Bogats. They grab you, they hold you, they they make you spend extra time there. That's the ultimate goal, is, the, is to get you in position or out of position by holding you where they want you to. Have you noticed a drop-off in illegal screen calls this year? 
And they don't. Every screen in the NBA is illegal. You ask, ask you can ask any NBA player. Uh, oh, I can't remember who it was the other day. Said, um, I learned the hard way. Every screen in the NBA is illegal. <laughs> well, Joe and I last year went to the the refs had a, like a chalk talk or whatever, and they came and they talked about like the things that were points of emphasis last year, and and moving screens was a point of emphasis last year. And I noticed that they did call more last year than they I haven't I can't even remember any called this year, but I did remember that they did call some last year. Do they, the, anytime they do the points of emphasis, they'll do it for the first month and then it'll just kind of just it's kind of like the, the anti flopping initiative and the fines. Um, ben Golliver did a thing on it. Uh, I think he said the last one was called in like December. Really? So, yeah, I mean, they get all excited about it at the beginning and then it kind of. It's just kind of send a message, knock it off, guys. Right. And we're made to think that that was enough, and now it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> exactly. And and the, the egregious illegal screens will still get called, for the most part. Um, but in the playoffs, I mean, just watch any pick and roll. Watch watch the hands. It's it's the hands inside. Like, you usually see the... The, the hands the left, inside the body? Like the, Exactly. The left hand grab the right wrist, you know, YMCA pick set. That's not the NBA. It's both hands inside. Here, let me grab the waistband of your shorts and hold you real tight in here for just that split second. Let me grab a little bit of that jersey. And as I as I turn my hips inside to roll, let me go ahead and kind of drag you a step or two and pull your jersey and off get you off balance and make it look like it's nothing here. And then I'll rip through with my left arm, and that'll pull you through. There's all these little things that they'll do in order to get you off balance, off axis. And just that, I mean, this is the NBA. One step is the difference between contesting a shot and not contesting a shot. And these guys are so good that if you're not able to get there, the, the their chance of success going up is exponentially increased. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've been watching Noah Vonley since he came here. Cause I just, the first time I laid eyes on him, I was like, that's an amazing specimen. And I really want, I mean, he's just, his, his body is incredible for the NBA. And so I've really been watching he, and hoping he's a that lab built big. I he mean, if you're going to, if you're going to fantastic. build somebody a lab, yeah. that in thick legs, long arms, broad shoulders, crazy athletic, big behind, big, exactly the big booty. I mean, everything you want in that position, physically, it is manifested. His legs are like tree trunks. They're just yeah. incredible. And everything so, about him. But so what, what I've seen him, over this last year, especially, I've seen him get do well because he's also had more playing time. But I've seen him do better at getting into position and getting at least somewhat set in that screen. But I haven't seen the finer details like you were just talking about, like where to put your hand, how do you get your hand down in there? And that's why I would love, love, love the Trailblazers to pick up a um, a veteran. Like, you need a dirty, forward. savvy vet. You need yeah. a dirty, somebody savvy who will vet sit there and watch the game. Vonley comes off and, you know, he pulls him aside and says, see what he was doing to you right there? This is what, watch me. I'm going to go in and play him for three minutes and you're going to, you know, for a minute and you're going to see what I've done. Like, I, that's what I, and I think with that, Vonley could, his uh, trajectory could just go really high and quickly. If he just had somebody who could just spend that time for a season sitting next to him going, this is what this guy always did to me. Here's how I handled it. Well, Kevin Garnett's out here as a mercenary right now, and he's he's been working with multiple teams. And, I mean, going to the Kevin Garnett school of dirty screen setting would be fantastic for him. 
I, I think I think he would pick it up very quickly because I've seen the progression and like he's gotten to the point where he's now in the right place and his timing is good and his communication is good. He just needs that extra little coaching. Watch Nurkic. Watch Nurkic. He has a natural ability. I mean, even for the most casual observer, when you see a seven foot, I mean, Nurkic is a legit 300 pounder. He's a massive human being. Standing next to the guy, you're like, okay, there's a difference between this guy and everybody else in the league. He's legitimately one of the biggest dudes in the league. He is just massive. And I've seen guys that are that big before that just don't set good screens. But he understands not not just the the the, the nuance of the the dirty, the illegal stuff, whatever you want to call it. But he th- I think you have to have a joy in rattling somebody's bones to be a really good screen setter. Garnett wasn't a big guy, but he always he loves screening people. Andrew Bogut, he loves screening people. The, the, the best example I can call to in recent Blazer memory, Joel Prisbilla. Mm-hmm. tall okay. strong but not the biggest frame but he lived to screen people he loved absolutely rattling somebody to the core and watching them fall and you know in in, in, a, in a bag of bones and you could just kind of see the, the giggle just kind of a little a little wry smile Nurkic has that he loves putting a, a guard that weighs a hundred plus pounds less than him in the pick and roll, crushing him, then rolling to the rim, catching and dunking. He, he, I think you have to have that preternatural ability and, and desire. I don't want to say you want to hurt somebody, but you you want to inflict your will. Nurkic is a guy that wants to inflict his physical will and intimidate you night in and night out. He's the only guy on the Blazers roster that physically wants to do that, and it manifests. Well, I hope that... Um, I hope that we get to see him doing that for many years. I don't even know if we're going to see him this year or not. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think he's going to play? Uh, I don't think he's going to. No, I, don't, I don't think he should. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know what the medical situation is. And well, I, we I got can... the update. He was upgraded from out to doubtful. And I don't. I, I don't. This Doubtful is, the is not very promising for. I, I don't know <laughs> if this is the the pessimist in me, but I'm just wondering what the what the ticket sale situation looks like, and if that those two happen to coincide. Well, I was just wondering how much of it is gamesmanship as well, because I think I mean I was saying this on the podcast last week that um, I think Terry has to Terry Stotts has to you know throw everything that he possibly can at it, and at this point against a team that is so good and so talented like the gilded staple whackers he's got to pull out every single uh, trick in the book and i think gamesmanship has got to be a part of it like they don't know if he's going to play or not i I mean i don't think that golden state really cares i mean we we saw what they just did without without durant and curry and thompson played like crap i mean in granted that's what I, I, I really want people to, to understand here is that there was never a chance of Portland winning this series ever. This is not the, the miracle on ice. This is not, I mean, there was, if this upset occurred, it would legitimately be the biggest upset in sports history. And I don't mean that any kind of hyperbole, the talent discrepancy and the depth and breadth of golden States roster compared to Portland's is drastic. Kevin Durant is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Steph Curry is arguably, maybe not even arguably anymore, the greatest shooter in NBA history. Draymond Green is one of the best defensive players of the past 20 years. 
they're all on the same team, and I haven't even gotten to Clay Thompson yet. And don't oh, forget and about Ian way, Clark. Yeah, Ian Clark, the, 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 the president emeritus of the Blazer Killer Club. Oh, and by the way, they've got Andre Iguodala, the Swiss Army knife of all things. I mean, there is just no shortage. Oh, and David West, a guy who's been through playoff battles and was a former All-Star, multiple-time All-Star. I mean, this is a team that is just load. And I, I know it's heresy to, to compare them to the Bulls, but talent-wise, this team has more talent than those Bulls teams did. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, they had Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, but... I mean, you look at the rest of the roster, you had the Luke Longleys, the Bill Cartwrights of the world. Yeah, sure, there was a Grant every now and then. And yeah, you had a Steve Kerr every now and then. But this team has Steve Kerr. <laughs> okay, before you get too upset, I think I'm going to dial it back a little bit. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just, you're right. Like, the more you think about it, the more you just uh find things that this that that team does incredibly well that are that the trailblazers are just not equipped to be able to do right now that's not a slight at portland no no it's just they're on two totally different trajectories we're talking about this is this isn't even again not even an arguably statement the Golden State Warriors, as currently iterated, are one of the two greatest teams of all time. And you can throw in the, the, the 86, 87 uh, Celtics in there, too. So you can say the top three teams of all time. Okay, Th- well, I don't want to talk Portland's about them against. anymore. They get enough play. I don't want to talk about them anymore. We're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't get any more of my thoughts. Um what I do want to ask you about, though, because we're we're kind of running out of time. One of the things I did want to ask you about is um, I know that you do a lot of the, you know, post-game analysis. You write these great articles, which I really look forward to whenever you publish them because um, I learn so much about them. But what I want to know from you is how do you approach game analysis? Like, especially, like, say, when you know that you're going to be writing up the analysis after a game. Do you... Do you you know, have like a regular routine of things you know you're going to look for? Or do you just like watch and see what happens? How do you approach that? Um, when I do post-game analysis, I, I go into every game with, okay, who's playing, who's not playing, the, the, the basic fundamentals. And then, this may seem a little bit weird, but I live tweet all the games. And as I do that, I, I'm putting information out there, the things that I'm seeing, but I'm also basically doing mental notes for myself. And I go back to and refer, and I've, I've, I've got my Word document open where I'm taking notes on, on particular things or I'm writing down timestamps so I can go back and watch video um, as soon as the game's over. Um, I'm recording the game so I can go back and watch particular instances for exact moments where something looked different or something looked off. Because a lot of times I'll, I'll mention a, a specific play that uh, may or may not be game changing, but something that's that that stood out particularly in either form, function, or style. But I treat every game the same in that I go in with, okay, let's see what happens. And there's a first quarter narrative, a second quarter narrative, first half narratives, third quarter, fourth quarter, second half narrative, and then there's the overlying flow of the game. The the what I th- what I want a lot of Blazers Edge readers to know is there is nothing worse. For uh, someone who's doing analysis, that's Dave Deckard, myself, uh, Eric Griffith, anybody who's doing any of these, Willie Rady, um, when we're doing these, 
when a game goes into overtime out of nowhere, it is the worst thing known to man. Like everybody's like, particularly like the, the Portland comeback ones, the comeback kids, when you, the Portland's down by 15 and with, you know, seven minutes to go. And we're basically putting the finishing touches on the, in the analysis. We're like, okay, we know the trans Portland blew the third quarter, came out slow in the first and then the fourth quarter was just kind of a, a carryover the rest of the game. Now the Blazers make the comeback and they force overtime. Now we have to completely blow the narrative apart, and we don't know what's going to happen in overtime. So we're scrambling to get these ready, usually within 60 minutes of the, the final horn. Well, gosh, I'm so sorry that the Blazers <laughs> having a terrific comeback is so inconvenient to you, it, Dan. We, it's really fun, but at the same to- token, it's really difficult to, to to write these things and make sense of the narrative. And that's the, the biggest thing. You think Dave, it's hard to write? How hard do you think it is to play in one of those games? <laughs> I will say this. Dave Deckard is the best narrative writer not just at blazer's edge that's that's goes without saying but he's the best narrative writer i've ever been around in in general and he's helped me a ton and he'll he'll feed me a nugget here or there like hey focus on this or look at that and the typically things that i'm looking at but he'll, he'll frame something or ask me a question that'll get me to completely change how i've looked at games and that's that's i think the biggest thing with the analysis that all of the writers we're always Talking for those who don't know, no, we we have a, a Slack channel where we're always talking about the, the game and, and discussing it and things that we see or don't see, and it all feeds into I think all of our writing, and I think all of this kind of comes together and, and frames the analysis on on every single game night, and there's a lot of discussion. It's any time that there's analysis done, it's I don't think anybody will say anything different. It's never a singular effort. There's there's always feedback and discussion between all of the writers. Um, the, the and it sounds these. like you with people on Twitter. Like, do, do yeah, people absolutely. point things out to you that maybe you hadn't noticed or you thought, oh, I should give this a little more thought? Yeah, there's there's always somebody that, that wants to say that this, that, or the other, or they see this. What's really funny is when I see something that I think is, is very prevalent to me and I'll, I'll have somebody say the complete opposite uh, um you know i'll say the blazers defense has really struggled all game long and then I'll, somebody will be like what are you talking about the blazers defense has been spectacular in this area or that area and i'm looking at the that that the box score and i'm looking at the play-by-play and i'm looking at the game and i'm thinking how did you come to that conclusion now i may think they may be wrong but i'll i'll, I'll reassess it and reevaluate it and, and take a look at it, what exactly is going on there but yeah i i love the back and forth on twitter i think that's the best thing about it oh i you know i enjoy being on twitter and i i like to learn things as they're happening so it sounds like though when you are doing a game you don't do a i mean you probably you do some um, you know, looking at preliminary at where each team is, you know, what their general statistics are and stuff, but you don't do like a super deep dive on each, I, on the teams I, before you go into it. This is going to sound weird, but I have multiple portable hard drives because I've got synergy data and access that I've, I've got copied over. I've got literally thousands of hours of game film. So when, especially come mid season, um, unless we're playing a team for the first time, um, I've watched that team probably 10 plus times. And if, if it's, if it's a, a division rival or a team that I really enjoy watching like Milwaukee, they, if, if the Blazers aren't on and the, and the bucks are playing chances are I'm, I'm watching a bucks game. Yeah. God, why wouldn't you want to watch Antetokounmpo? Copo? God, yeah, I mean, fun to watch. I am a a 
basketball psycho fan. I, I, I am always watching. I mean, I, I probably watch more basketball than 99.9% of the free world. It's, it's just, it, that's, that's my thing. I love watching basketball. I love, and it's not just the, the, a particular player or a particular team. It's the aesthetic of it all. And I, and then I, I take a look at a lot of, while I take a look at, at the Blazers numbers a ton, I take a look at lead wide and team numbers for teams across the league to see where the Blazers rank and comparing fast different styles and chart and graphs. So I have all that stuff in my head going into these games and for those those that don't know, I worked in, in military intelligence before, or, you know, in my younger years. So this is how my brain has always worked. So that that preparation, it's there certainly, but it's done. You're much, always doing it. You know, exactly. Like. You're, you're it's, always it's, doing it's, it. It's a constantly involving process. I need to call up the last ten games and look at yeah. that. You're like, that's always. Hey, that's the Wizards always are there. coming to town. Let me let me go ahead and watch the last ten games of John Wall footage. I've I've, I've watched the last seven games of the Wizards. You know that that stuff's always going on in my head, and I, I understand why a lot of other people either can't or don't want to do that. But that's that's where I'm usually making my my assumptions and my analysis from is that I, I'm constantly updating this this volume of, of knowledge on a particular team player system as this as the season evolves each year but how do you pick through all that data it's honestly i i work as a business analyst you know in in my private life that's just what i do for a living i i, I have my laptop is open and running and on multiple screens and i've got multiple platforms set up in in my office where i'm always looking at data that's just it's I people always ask me you know, I can or say I can never do what you do and I I can't look at a computer screen like that all day and look at numbers all day, it, it's just something I I I love I love trying to pick things apart trying to understand who what when where why and then to take that a step further basically to how to build a better mousetrap like how can somebody do this better and I think as a fan that some people look at that as me being either pessimistic or never satisfied. And to an extent, that's probably right. I do get an enjoyment out of um, all the little things in it, but I, I also want to see that constant improvement. If that if that makes sense. No, it actually it actually totally does make sense. I was just making a little note to myself because I enjoy the data as well, although I get overwhelmed by it, which is why I'm asking you so many questions about it. Like, how do you know, like what, what, what to look for? But for me, like you were talking about how you love to look at it and go, okay, how can we make this better? Which makes a lot of sense if you're like, do this for a living for businesses too, because businesses want to get better. And when I look at the, the data like that, I think, what story does this tell? What's, what's the beginning in the middle and the end, end story of, of the data? Um, so I was just thought it was interesting the contrast. I don't know if those are contrasting approaches that you and I might you know have it, as we look at data, or if it's a different if it's it's, it's it's a different style. And I and I do some of that too because I do a lot of data modeling and a data and data visualization where I have to tell a story. Um, and I, I do that a, a lot of the graphics that you'll see in in my articles and and if you ever if I ever take you on as a client. Um, I, I do a lot of of data visualization and data modeling to tell. Okay, here's where they were. Here's where they are. Here's where we want to be. And you know, sometimes the narrative can be um, different. Not necessarily different, but when I say uh, how can we get how can we get 
better in these particular areas, or this particular player needs to get better. Like showing um, CJ McCollum's growth as a mid-range shooter, or just as a shooter in general, where I can say, yeah, he could get better. Perfect example, his free throw rate. Last year, CJ's free throw rate was dangerously close to being the lowest ever for a 20-point-per-game score. Now he's actually gotten better. Wait, rate? do you mean like the number of three free throws that he uh, attempts that he shot. gets? Yes. Okay. So free free throw rate is essentially free throw rate divided by uh, uh, field goal attempts. So basically how many field goal attempts does it take you to get a free throw? And your well, average, How many times does he get to the line? Exactly. So your average 20 point per game score is going to have a free throw rate of 0.3. Basically for every three shots they get up, they're going to get a free throw attempt. That's the league average? For your for your twenty point per game score, okay. yeah, that's since seventy. I want to say seventy one seventy two, nineteen seventy one seventy two. Uh, that's that's the 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 rating. Um, CJ was at one point. It was at point one four. Okay, which is well below. Well, well below. I think he ended the season. I think at point one five one, something like that. But he just missed being the lowest ever. Okay. Wow. Now now. That's not necessarily a slight at CJ. It's just a, it was a hole in his game. Now he's taken that. I I, I want to say he's at like 0.23 to 0.24, maybe a little bit higher now. The last time I checked, but when you when I say that, okay, this is this is an issue. This is a problem. It's it's a good problem because it, he, he can make it better. He's already a good player. Now he can be better as um, he gets as he gets better at those things that. And I guess the, you know, the, the job, you know, when somebody works for an organization or works with a player, they're looking at the data and they're identifying the places where the, the, where those shortcomings are. And the, and then they look at the shortcomings, which can, um, be improved. Exactly. And that's something that CJ's definitely, um, definitely worked on. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that he's put effort in that because, generating free throws is a basketball skill. Look at James Harden. I mean, you can say he flops and he whines and he complains, but he still catches people reaching over and over and over. That's a skill. He knows how to do it. Damian Lillard developed it. He went from getting to the free throw line at a pretty substantial rate to a very, very good rate the last year and a half. And it wasn't, he wasn't a guy that got to the line like crazy. And now all of a sudden he is a guy that gets to the line with, with, you know, some of the best in the league. And that's not just getting superstar calls. That's knowing how to generate calls. And that's that's that, that's 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 the data telling a that's story. That's a skill that you learn and that you that you perfect as you go along. The numbers can say that yeah, okay, his free throw rate went up. But when you take that and you pair it with okay, now CJ or Damian is putting the ball on the floor more, driving to the rim more. He's added new things to his game. Think three years ago, uh, Damian Lillard did not have a floater. Now, all of a sudden, he's got a floater. Now, he's got defenses closing out on him. Now, when he goes to that, that Euro step where it looks like he may go into that floater, now he drags that foot one more time, and he goes up for the little runner and gets bumped, and now he gets the N one call. How many times have we seen that this year where he goes into that little Euro drag step and where it looks like he may go for the floater, the defender bumps him, and he flips it up at the rim and hits the N one That's the evolution of understanding how to get to the free throw line. Well, Dan, I could talk to you all night about this stuff because I got like a million questions just on the Euro step alone. But we're gonna have to we're gonna have to call it short because it's gonna get late and we got other games to watch. And um, yeah, I, like I said, I could just I could just go on and on. Um, but I think probably 
we got to just stop it here. And um, let's just say we'll have a we'll, we'll talk more later because this has been super illuminating for me. And um, we barely even got into my favorite player, Damian Lillard. <laughs> I was like, okay, I want to talk to about Damian Lillard. Dan, get ready to talk about Damian Lillard. And like, we got to talk I'll, about I'll, him I'll a little bit. I'll come back and talk nothing but Damian Lillard. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. But yeah, I don't want to keep you much longer. I think we got the, the Clippers have uh, started. The Clippers jazz game has, has started. And yes, I want to go currently 34, uh, 21 Utah. And I, I picked Utah to win this series. So I'm, I'm hoping that Utah pulls yeah. this out at the beginning of the season. I thought this was going to be the Clippers year, but it has not panned out that way, but <laughs> it's not over yet. Right. It's never, oh, that's the great, that's the thing I love about basketball. Anything can happen. You never know what's going to happen. The Blazers, you know, they, they could win they, a game. <laughs> they could win a game. Maybe they could win two games. You know what? I don't want to ever, I don't, I don't want to put it in the out and in, out into the universe that I don't think that they're going to win, but I think it's going to be supremely hard. Um, but you know, I am ready to be pleased and surprised and completely open to that happening. <laughs> hey, I, 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 I'm all for it. I mean, People, people take that when I say things in the, the way that I say them as I don't want Portland to win. That, that's not true. I always want the Blazers to win. Um, I just want you to know that I can totally see through all that. I can totally yeah. tell that you care. Like when you get upset about or not upset, but when you get, you know, riled up about things, I can tell you're getting riled up about things because deep down you really care. I, I mean, I love this team. I mean, I, I've said it before. I'm an L.A. guy who became a Blazers fan. I mean, if, if that doesn't say anything about my, my fandom, I, I don't know what will. Oh, my gosh. That just opened up like 100 more questions. <laughs> we got to cut it short. Dan, thank you so much for joining with me tonight. I really appreciate it. You want to tell people hey, no how problem. they can find you in your various different platforms and how they can interact with you on Twitter while you're supposed yep. to be watching a game? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you, you can follow me on Twitter at DMarang. Yes, it, it is meringue like the pie. It's M-A-R-A-N-G. Um, follow me on Twitter. If you ever have questions, if you ever want to come – get together and catch a game at a local watering hole or whatever. Um, I'm always glad to talk. If you've got questions for the podcast, I'm I'm always open and and willing to discuss anything and everything as as it relates to basketball. So um, go ahead and and, uh, give me a follow or reach out and all my DMS are open. And uh, I always love talking ball, as you can tell um, by the hour long uh, podcast that I can fill on a regular basis. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it, Dan. And so, uh, on behalf of Dan Morang, thanks everybody for joining us. Don't forget that you can find the Blazers Edge podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, or you can just go right over to blazersedge.com. Find all kinds of great writing by writers like Dan and Dave, who we've talked about. And the po- the podcast is also posted there. You can get online and do uh, chats during the game. It's a great place to go and find all the Blazers content that you could possibly need. So until next time, go Blazers. 